0: Morning, Glory, and Evening Grace America, it's Hugh Hewitt. Although you've been listening to Ed Morrissey, I'm back for the last hour of the week. It's the hour of Hillsdale, the Hillsdale Dialogues, in which I talk with Dr. Larry Arn, or one of his colleagues at Hillsdale College from Michigan, about the key classics in Western literature after a little bit of rumination on the events of the week. Dr. Arn, happy, uh, happy end of January to you.
1: Happy end of January to you, too.
0: What did you make of the president's inaugural address?
1: Amazing. Why? Well, it's a, it's a tour de force. It's one of the most radical things I've ever read, and it's uh, extremely artful. Um, first of all, it's it, it, the contrast in it between the appeals to constancy and the appeals to change are the heart of the speech and where its contradiction lies, and they are extremely well chosen. Um, uh, the speech begins... Uh, first of all, talk about inaugural addresses for just a minute. Go ahead. Uh, there have been, what, 45 presidents of the United States? Have I got that number right? Yep. And, no, he's uh,
0: 44. There are 44 presidents. There.
1: 44 presidents of the United States. And and um, all of them have taken the oath that's required of them in the Constitution. And almost always, there's been a little ceremony and a short speech. And so it's comparable, right? There are... It's amazing how the continuity of America makes it in one sense the oldest country in the world. Um, You know, our Constitution is the longest living, and our executives have have taken office under the same form since George Washington. Obama plays to that beautifully. He begins by a quote of the Declaration of Independence, and then very quickly after that, in the quote, you know, he, he talks about the enduring strength of the Constitution in the first line, and then he quotes, "We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal." He he quotes that, and then right away he's got a a a a, a, a hint or a a a recitation. It's not named from Lincoln's own second inaugural, uh, where Lincoln said very beautifully, uh, in rough language, "If every drop of blood drawn by the lash through." 200 years of the bondsman's unrequited toil must now be repaid with another drawn by the sword, still it will be said that the ways of God are righteous altogether. Uh, Obama says, through blood drawn by lash and drawn by sword, we have learned. And then he, he has a long list of the things that we have learned. And so he's appealing to the example of the founders and what he calls at the end of the speech the everlasting meaning of right in America to set up his second term. And it's in the middle of the speech where he makes plain the revolutionary meaning and purposes he assigns to these principles that are old. And those are very radical and uh, very aggressive. And not true. No, no. they're You know, it, it, in the end, by the way, in one important sense, the speech doesn't make any sense, but It has very deep meaning nonetheless.
0: Oh, it's significant. Uh, I I thought the rhetoric was at times pedestrian, but let me ask you about a couple of things in particular, Dr. Larry Arn. At one point, he roots in his redefinition of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the events at Seneca, Selma, and Stonewall. Let me play it for you.
2: The people declare today that the most evident of truths, that all of us are created equal is the star that guides us still, just as it guided our forebears through Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall, just as it guided all those men and women, sung and unsung, who left footprints along this great mall to hear a preacher say that we cannot walk alone. To hear a king proclaim that our individual freedom is inextricably bound to the freedom of every soul on earth.
0: Now, I thought this was the high point of the rhetoric, Larry, Aren't a king. That's marvelously done. But to appropriate Seneca Falls, Selma, and Stonewall into the tradition of the Declaration is both comforting but also radical.
1: Very much, yeah. He, he, <clears throat> he, uh, so let's, let's get to that about Stonewall. Uh, there's something to introduce in in the beginning of that, right? Um, this is, to understand this speech, you have to understand it as a statement on the meaning of human rights, the self-evident truth that all men are equal and endowed by their Creator with unalienable rights. What are these rights? What is it that you can have a right to? And in the Founders, that's very clear. The authority for these rights is in nature. And that means that there's always, in the assertion of the rights also an act of obedience underway. There's a humility about it. So, under the laws of nature and of nature's God, according to Jefferson in the Declaration, we are required to set forth our reasons, and we are required to obey these laws, too. This word nature comes from the Latin word for birth, and it means the process of begetting and growth by which human things come to be. And so this speech has, in, in, the, in the middle of it, and the most radical things are in the middle of the speech, and that's artful because your readers, being intelligent, will know that the most prominent place in any piece of writing is the beginning, and the second most prominent place is the end, and the things you put in the middle are the things that you don't want to emphasize. And so he he, this this thing about the family and about gay rights and and about Stonewall where there was a riot of some gays what that means is your sexual nature is now a matter of opinion or will can be altered and you have a right to alter it and that goes along with another thing in the speech toward to when he begins his transition toward the end at the you might say at the end of the middle of the speech he has a paragraph where he talks about uh I got to find the specific words just a second. We cannot mistake absolutism
0: for principle. Oh, I have that. Let me play this line. It's one of my the line I played the most since the speech.
2: Okay. Not mistake absolutism for principle. Or substitute spectacle for politics. Or treat name-calling as reasoned debate. <laughs> we must act. We must act knowing that our work will be imperfect. We must act knowing that today's victories will be only partial. And that it will be up to those who stand here in four years, and 40 years, and 400 years hence, to advance the timeless spirit once conferred to us in a spare Philadelphia hall. So uh, why did you single that
0: out, Dr. Larry Arnn from Hillsdale?
2: it, It echoes something that Obama writes in The
1: Audacity of Hope. He says that implicit and the idea of constitutional liberty is that there be no absolute truth. And, and you know, first of all, the Constitution was written mainly by James Madison, and in the Federalist Papers he says that he, the authority for writing it is in the principles of the Declaration of Independence. And, of course, his closest friend was Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson speaks in the terms of absolute truth. Obama quotes some of them, you know, the self-evident truths endowed by our Creator, he leaves out the conception of the laws of nature and of nature's God. Now the point is, if you have a government pursuing the idea of equality, you have to ask, what does equality mean? Lincoln, whom Obama loves to quote, says that they the founders stated with tolerable precision what they meant. They didn't mean that we were equal in all respects. We're not all the same height. We're not all the same weight. We're not all the same energy. We're not all the same color. He gives a bunch of examples like that. Equal in our rights. What is it possible for us to have a right to? James Madison says that, that, that a right is anything that a man to which a man may attach a value and have a right, leaving the like advantage to every other. Now, if that means, if Obama means that we will transfer resources from one person to another to make them more equal, without that person who loses the resources having committed some harm, then you set up a war in the society. So you can have a right to speak, and we can all speak all we want. And you can have a right to pray, and we can all pray all we want. You can have a right to your property, and everybody can have that right to whatever property they have. Lincoln says about property rights let not him who is houseless tear down the house of another. Rather, let him labor, knowing that his own will be secure as well when it is completed. So, our possession of our property depends upon our ability to have it safe from from requisition. So Obama, under Obama's understanding of rights, since there isn't any absolute truth, we define the truth for ourselves in each generation, then the generations who come in four years and 40 years and 400 years, they will make up new rights, and they will adjust all of the entitlements in in the society according to the definition they make up.
0: And that, my friends, is radical, especially if that new definition is going to trod upon the old definitions which are true. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arne of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, Hugh for Hillsdale, as we turn to our weekly Hillsdale Dialogue, the Genesis that chapter of the Bible is up today on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the Our American Hugh Hewitt, joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. You can also get there by going to Hugh for Hillsdale once a week for three segments. Uh, Dr. Arne or another of the Hillsdale faculty and scholars, joins me to talk about some entry in the canon of Western literature. This weekend, for the next few weeks, we're talking about the Bible. And Dr. Arn, I begin there. Uh, This will shock some people. Obviously, it's not a religious show. Hillsdale, though it has many, many religious people within it, is not a religious school. Why in the world are we including a religious text in the canons of the West?
1: Well, uh, the West is the combination of influences that come from Jerusalem, where the idea of one God for every man is born, and Athens, where the idea of one truth, one philosophy for every man or woman is born. And, you know, about Hillsdale, by the way, Article 6 of our article says that the teaching of the Christian faith by precept and example shall remain a conspicuous aim of the college, and so it is to this very day.
0: So would you describe yourself as a religious college then? Sure. Okay, that's interesting. Not a denominational school, though.
1: No, no, and the first article states our commitment to civil and religious freedom. And and, and that's in a paragraph that begins the denomination of Christians known as free will Baptists, along with other friends of education. It's because of that beginning that we have never had a faith statement required for attendance. But students must promise respect for God and the rights for others, and we are, in practice, a heavily, I mean overwhelmingly, Christian college.
0: I've got to ask, respect for God, does that exclude... Uh, 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 I, I know it doesn't because the best law student I've ever had, Mr. Sandifer, was a self-described atheist. So I guess respect for God does not oblige people to actually believe in him.
1: Well, if Mr. Sandifer was ridiculing the faith of the college and of its members, then I wasn't working here at the time. I don't know that young man, and he's a very fine young man. I would have kicked his tail.
0: (laughs) Okay, Now let's talk a little bit about the reaction of your students to the Bible being on the curriculum and how you approach it.
1: Well, first of all, the Bible is a thing to read. It's a great piece of writing, and it's full of profundity and interest. And so the first thing is, like one of the purposes of our college, by the way, alongside civil and religious freedom, is intelligent piety. And that means we should learn and know what the Bible says. It is a great source of wisdom and the revealed word of God. And so the first step is to read it and see what it says. And it's extremely interesting what it says.
0: Now, there's a proposition that you put, the revealed word of God, that others who are not in the judeo-christian tradition will reject do you teach other texts that purport to be the revealed world of god word of god
1: we do of course we do some but not not as much as the bible um and you know another thing you have to remember about people forget things like this today uh colleges proceed by evidence and argument and proof right and so we don't have any way of operating except to study and think and talk and say what seems to us true. Now, we also have a mission that describes a goal and purpose of what we do. And people think because by the way the, the, the because of the influence of progressivism, the ancestors of Barack Obama, you know, John Dewey writes that if you have a religious purpose in a college you are obliged in honor to identify yourself as a propaganda institution. But to think, I mean, what we're going to do today is talk about what Genesis says. And what it says is amazing and profound and great to know. We can all agree about that, that its revealed Word of God is a claim that it makes that must be treated with respect, and also a conclusion that each person must draw for himself.
0: And so how do you go about asking your students to study the Bible large before we come down to Genesis specifically?
1: Well, in, in just the way I said, let's start out by knowing what it says. And nobody gets a grade on whether they say they believe it or not, but most everybody here does. Um, and, and it's a, but you, you start with that, right? And, and remember, you're required to, to develop your ultimate opinion about the Bible. There are, You are required to side with it or against it on this point, its claim that it is the word of the great and only God. And that is a fundamental question about it. And you can't ignore that question. And to say, by the way, that it doesn't matter what you think about that is to take sides against it, as radically as if you said you knew it to be false.
0: True. Oh, that's so true. Now, I, I want to uh, quote, or at least paraphrase, something Lincoln said. He said he did not have formal education that he was raised on Shakespeare in the Bible. Am I getting that roughly correct, Larry Arn?
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: When he said that, what did he intend to convey? And how good of an education would you have with those two texts?
1: Mm, they'll do. I mean, you know, it helps if you have a mind like Lincoln's, but... Uh,
0: <laughs> they'll do. Why will they do?
1: Well, because... Uh, Shakespeare is you know he's the poet that Socrates predicted would arise the one who equally facile in tragedy and comedy and his plays encompass the world and the universe and its possibilities
0: when did Socrates predict that
1: Uh, you know we don't know exactly but it's in in one of the dialogues and the name will come to me in a minute how interesting
0: Uh, I've never heard that before
1: yeah yeah.
0: Okay. So he's he pr- he's,
1: a, he's a, the greatest of the poets and a philosophic poet, and and you know the the the, the what poetry does uh, is it describes details in ways that reveal the abstractions latent in them. Uh, my friend David Whalen, who was on your show last week with me, and I were having lunch today, and I'm reading a Mark Helprin novel, who's a friend of us both, and uh, and I was describing how they go on a little boat trip these characters in this novel and the whole universe is displayed in this boat trip well that's the art of a poet and and also things are put to put into movement and motion you know human human beings are moving in great in great dramas and you see them in motion and you can see what they personify what they are in principle because of that
0: there are there's a great deal of motion in all of the bible there are incredible stories in all of the bible how much of it do you expect and it's long 66 books by a number of different authors with one inspiration but how much of it do you expect your students at hillsdale to know
1: well i i actually wrote that down so i could tell you the answer to that question and let me see if i can find it the answer is everybody in the core reads key passages and uh can't find a silly piece of paper but we read much of genesis and of job particularly important works and much of exodus and then we read uh, matthew and we read uh, the book of john a very important of the gospels and we read a couple of the letters of paul and they're all in the core everybody reads those and of course most people here take other um, uh, you know I found my list now long last after I've studied it. Let me see if I just told you. As
0: we run up against the break, when we come back, we'll know what's on the list, and we'll go into the first entry on it, Genesis, in great detail. My guest is Dr. Larry Arnitz. The Hillsdale Dialogues on Friday, the hour of Hillsdale. Uh, They're all available at hillsdale.edu if you missed the first many of them, and the ones that come and you want to know where you can find them, go to hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back. Thirty-four minutes after the hour, Americans, you hear with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College on that part of the program during the week, which I reserve for the Hillsdale Dialogues with Dr. Arn or his colleagues on the faculty and among the scholars at Hillsdale to discuss the great works of literature that drive the West and make it coherent. Today, Genesis, our first week on a portion of the Bible. Uh, Dr. Arn Genesis, Job, Exodus, Matthew, John, the letters of Paul. I hope Revelation's on there as well. We will be covering them in subsequent weeks. Did we miss any?
1: First and Second Samuel, uh, Maccabees, shows the rebellion, uh, Matthew, John, Acts of the Apostles, and six chapters from Galatians.
0: Terrific. Well, we'll cover that all. Now, to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now the heaven was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hover- hovering over the waters. I am using a, an NIV uh, translation there. Which translation do you recommend? We use the revised standard. Here. Okay, RSV. And so why, what's important about Genesis? It's a, it's a creation myth, right? Uh, well, it's really great. Uh,
1: and I, I would say, first of all, so, so I, I've got a few points I want to make sure we make today, and I'll make one of them now. First of all, the order and the days of creation are important. And you should go look at them, by the way, and write down what gets made on what day, and they build toward life and toward man. It's interesting to say, and then he says that he creates man in his image, and he gives him a kind of a dominion. And he doesn't—it doesn't exactly explain what in his image means, but then that comes up later when God gives in, in, the, in Genesis two, when God gives the man the job of naming things. And that is like God, because in Genesis 1, God is naming things. And to give a thing its name is to understand what it is in principle. In other words, you can see a thing and say that it's hard or rough or tall. When you call it a tree, then you've named every tree, and you've isolated the identity of it, the essence of it that makes it what it is. And by the way, that's the capability, known as human reason, that makes human speech possible. And in Greek, when the word Genesis is a Greek word from the, from the translation from the Hebrew that's one of the oldest ones we have, the Septuagint, Sept, did I say that word right? And, uh, and the word Genesis means origin, so talking Greek here for a minute, In the Book of John, in the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, it says, "...in the beginning was the Word." It's referring to Jesus. And the the words are actually, inhe arche, enho, logos. Arche is like architect, archon, it was a Greek ruler, beginning point. And then, logos is the word for reason, or for speech, or for word. And of course, the Word of God is the thing that Jesus is, In the New Testament. And the point is, man and God share the Word. They both give the Word to things. And because of that, they can talk to each other. That brings them more closely together. And because of that, morality arises among them. And I'll give you an example. Lincoln says, uh, you can... Put a halter on a dog and lead it around wherever you want it to go, but you can't do it to a man. It's not right. Well, that's because he knows the difference between dog, a word, and man, and the difference in principle between them. And so man is the creature that is born with that divine gift. And that is stated in the first two books of the creation story, written you know, a thousand years before Christ, 3000 years ago.
0: When we come back from break, we'll continue talking about Genesis. Uh, Dr. Orn, you mentioned uh, Genesis or John begins in the beginning was the word in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some of our friends would say that is that's confusing, not a contradiction, perhaps, but confusing. Perhaps when we come back, you'll tell me what your response to that is, and the other points you wish to make about Genesis. I'm talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Head to hillsdale.edu. All of the conversations we have on the Hillsdale Dialogues are available there, all of them, back to when we began with the Iliad up to the present, and uh, we'll continue. And you can sign up for Imprimus, the newsletter of Hillsdale College, where the great Speeches delivered there are replicated and sent out for free in the monthly speech digest that is in Primus. Don't miss that. You can also sign up for the courses on the Constitution, the Progressive Assault on the Constitution for Western Civilization, all free, all available on hillsdale.edu. Stay with us. Forty four minutes after the hour, America to Hewitt. at the Hillsdale Dialogues continue with Dr. Larry Arn. Uh We're talking Genesis this week and perhaps next as well, since we're moving slow, as I would have expected. Dr. Arne, often you will find not critics, but opponents of the Bible will attempt to say there are contradictions therein. You know, the first two chapters of Genesis are opposed to the point of view of the chapters that follow. The first chapter of John is not the same as the first chapter of Genesis. How do you respond to people that play that particular game?
1: Uh, Well, that particular one about the first chapter of John and the first chapter of Genesis is not a very good one, because obviously what the first chapter of Genesis, when it says, in the beginning God created, that can't mean exactly the beginning, because where did God come from, right? It's like the Big Bang Theory that that explains what they claim to be the first thing, which is a, a, a very dense lump of matter explodes outward and creates the universe. And then, and then, but the point is, where'd that come from? So where did this God come from who made this thing? And the claim in the, in the New Testament is, and, and you know, I'm going to, there's, there's a long process of learning behind the claims I'm going to make, but I think they constitute orthodoxy, is that God is an eternally uncreated, always a being that is an activity among three persons. And the activity is described by the word love, and the persons are God the Father, the Spirit, which is mentioned here in the beginning of, in the, in the first verse of Genesis, and, 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 and the Son. And those three things, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis, who's a great guide in these things, uh, he says that uh, uh, you can think of God the Father like a father, and you can think of God the Son as what God has to say, and you can think of the Spirit as the activity that prevails among the three of them. He gives the example of like when you go to a party, the party takes on a spirit that's different from any individual in it. And so the point is, the book of the the, the first verse and the first books of Genesis don't pur- purport to give an account of the origins of God. And, and what the first book of John, the first verse of the first chapter of the of the Gospel of John does, is says that, that the Word was there at the beginning.
0: Well and artfully said. Now, on to the other points about Genesis, as many as we can in our five minutes remaining that you wish to make.
1: Okay, well, I want to... First of all, people should know that Genesis really falls into two parts, and that's because it has two things to do, and... The second one is unique to the Jewish religion, and a tremendous breakthrough in the world. And, I want, and I'll tell you what that is in a minute. But the first part, the first thing it has to do is it has to account for everything. And that's what it does in the beginning of Genesis, sort of through the Noah story. But then after that, it has to account for the rising of a people. And that's what's weird about this book, because in this book, God is not like the other ancient gods in the ancient cities. This god is at the same time a god of a people, which is what the Greek gods were, or the Persian gods were. He is, in addition, the god of everyone. And it's in that combination that makes this so potent an influence on the civilization of the West. Well, the beginning of the of, of the book of Genesis is about this creation of everything story, at sort of that and that and, and the transition comes when it's set up for the beginning of a birth of a people, and this people become terribly important. They're they're chosen, and that turns out to be hard duty, and also they're not very good at it often. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my people are stiff
0: That's well said, too. <laughs> or, as,
1: or as Churchill said... Every it's Thursday, like me and a
0: radio host.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you're chosen to be it, and sometimes you're not very good <laughs> at it. There you, know, you go. But you've got a soldier on, you know. it. The uh, Churchill said of the Jews, every time there are three Jews, there are two prime ministers and one leader of the opposition. <laughs> <laughs> when did he say that? He said that in uh, the Second World War, in Volume 3. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the point is, now, in this creation story, it's, it's very remarkable how it goes because it, it, it tells, you know, first of all, there's man, and then it focuses on man after this, and man is given dominion and he's given uh, duties, name everything, be the steward of everything. By the way, Obama says that in his inaugural address. We're the steward of everything, and that means what Obama means by that, and that means the government gets to tell you what to do.
0: That, that's the president's interpretation that's of Genesis, it. but and not I mean, ours.
1: And, you know, I, I'm not sure that this is exactly what the authors of Genesis, the great <laughs> author of Genesis, had in mind. And uh, but, but then man comes a cropper. He has a fall, right? And... It's always hard for people to understand, what does this fall mean? Because this snake shows up, right, and he tempts the woman. And there's just one thing man is told not to do. Don't eat of this fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because then you'll be like me, more like me than you were just having words. And Eve is tempted to do that and talks Adam into it. And they are aware of their nakedness. And they fall and they are expelled from Eden. And that's a decisive event in human affairs. And then the question is how can we all be guilty of that? And I have a view of that myself, which I'll state now because I think it's important. In a minute. This fall, okay. Well, maybe we'll start with this next time. But the point is the argument goes that it changes the biology of man when this fall happens, because we're to imagine here a creature without want, and now we have a creature who's cursed to difficulty in childbearing in difficulty of making a living, and not able to control his bodily processes as he was in Eden. And so now we become, because of the fall, necessitous creatures, and that exposes us to temptations different than the ones we would know In an idyllic state, imagine Eden or imagine heaven.
0: And that is where we will begin next week, back in Genesis, because not surprisingly, being a fallen radio host, I have not gone as far as I intended to do, but we will pick up and shoulder on next week. Soldier on, not shoulder on, soldier on next week. With Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. Thank you, Dr. Arn. I'll be right back, America, to wrap up this week's Hugh Hewitt Show.